Hello, this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 71, and today I'm joined by John Hasso, who is an assistant professor of English here at Penn State, in fact, joining us uh, this year. Uh, he's a new assistant professor. After receiving a BS and then an MS degree in communication studies at Kansas State University, John graduated with a PhD in communication from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, while at Pitt, John received uh, teaching and research and diversity fellowships and uh, published a, a book chapter uh, in a book called uh, The Making of Barack Obama, The Politics of Persuasion, and his uh, chapter was called Appointments and Disappointments, a Rhetorical Analysis of the Relationship Between President Obama, Catholics, and Their Church with the co-author of Dr. Anthony uh, Watts. Watts, is that right? Mm-hmm. Good. And um, he uh, also has a, uh, an article out in uh, publication in uh, the Explorations in Media Ecology, one that is an interest to me. I want to talk to him about this at some point, whether on the podcast or not. Is It's an article entitled Emerging, Pedag- Emerging Pedagogies and Converging Media, Classical Meets Critical in the Digital Age. But uh, today he joins us on the Digital Dialogue to talk about uh, his dissertation and a particular specific chapter associated with uh, the thinking of Plato and, um, and Socrates in the, in the dissertation. But the dissertation's title is Psychagogia, a study in the Platonic tradition of rhetoric from antiquity through the Middle Ages. So welcome, John, to the Digital Dialogue. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. So, so let's talk a little bit, first of all, about the, the, the dissertation as a whole, and then we can look at the more specific chapter that you and I uh, looked at for today on, on Plato, in particular on the Phaedrus. So mm-hmm. tell us about, about the dissertation. Yeah, uh, so I'm looking at the concept uh, of psychogogia uh, as Plato uh, defines rhetoric in the, in the Phaedrus as, as a certain type of, of leading of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to take that seriously uh, and ask, ask in the... Uh, in the dissertation, what that would look like, what that means, uh, and you know, are there antecedents to Plato, uh, you know, in this line of thinking, and then how how does this line of thinking get, get taken up? Uh, and so uh, it, it ranges from from Homer um, as a sort of uh, textual beginning that we have at least, and, and that seems to be a you know. Uh, well, well known and often used by by Plato, uh, and goes through uh, Heraclitus and Gorgias and kind of a broad ancient literature review, uh, as well as Aristophanes, and then then takes off to after Plato, uh, Saint Augustine, mm-hmm. uh, with interme- intermediary characters like like Cicero, and uh, terminates with uh, Saint Bonaventure. I see. Um, so in this in in this uh, uh, tradition, you have. Um, Plato standing as a kind of uh, figure of transition and yeah, I mean he's he's sort of I, I, I look at him as uh, the sort of foundation um, through which antecedent traditions get articulated to their fullest and then once they become somewhat codified, get picked up and, and evolve. Um, so he's I guess you know, the linchpin of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the entire sort of uh, theoretical framework there, um, and it's very. Uh, I would say it's it's uh, has a very large structural component. I mean, the the, the tripartite soul plays uh, the uh, is the interpretive key for for the overall project, um, and running with that, it, I was you know somewhat to my delight amazed at, at how um, 
many of these structures map on uh, or evolve from from that you know, sort of tripartite ideal. So. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you can trace that all the way to Freud. And it, beyond, exactly. You know, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, so let me, before we go into Plato and and the text that you um, shared with me, which was on the. Uh, Psychagogic rhetoric in the Platonic corpus, um, which is really looking at the Phaedrus in relation to some of the other dialogues, but taking your you take your key from the Phaedrus, yeah. understandably so, where he really talks about the the, um, the the rhetorician as somebody who is uh, a director of souls. Yes, <laughs> and um, but but I, I'm actually interested in this sort of pre-Platonic, pre-Socratic mm-hmm. uh, uh, period and and coming out of Homer. You looked at did in the dissertation. Did you, you looked at Gorgias and yes, okay, yeah. Uh, so um, I, the, I'd say along the lines of some of the disciplinary. Well, I call it disciplinary, but uh, the philosophical reading because uh, it's it's a dissertation rhetorical studies. But a lot of these elements uh, I found are just um, not as deeply explored uh, in the rhetorical literature. Um, mm-hmm. While there's a lot of literature on Plato, uh, there's very little that work in developing his, his, his psychology. And for me, you know, uh, I, I take it seriously when he says, well, if we're going to be rhetors and lead the soul, we need to know what the soul is. And so sure. I think I, I, I want to look at his, uh, his uh, psychology in that aspect. And so one of the more famous uh, situations in, in Homer that, that rhetoricians play with is uh, Book Nine of the Iliad with the, mm-hmm. the embassy uh, to Achilles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as I kind of want to do, uh, mm-hmm. I notice that there's three speakers um, that, uh-huh. are, that are approaching Achilles, and, and I immediately ask myself, you know, well, it, could this be an antecedent? Um, right. And it, yeah, it, 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 it actually... Um, Plays very well into uh-huh. uh, you know these three individuals all talking to this one individual right. in different ways um, that uh, look like you know part of the argument is that th- these are sort of prototypes okay. of, of these elements of the soul okay. uh, working together just not working that well. You know, I see. Uh, so um, who? So I mean, I, we didn't. We, I don't know if you, we didn't I, look at this, sec- can, this yeah. section, but so who? Talk, talk, I'm interested in this. So who's representing what part of the soul? Yeah. So Odysseus, right? as you know, the mm-hmm. sort of wily character. Um, you know, he's he's very uh, prudent. We'd say mm-hmm. in his argumentation. So he would be uh, representative of this sort of uh, you know rational prudence. Um, yeah. You know, just sort of uh, let's let's lay it out. Here's right. the situation uh, where um, Phoenix as the teacher, the father figure, right. uh, really speaks to the, the the moral education. I mean, literally of of uh, Achilles, mm-hmm. and so that seems to play well as a, as a, some sort of prototype to the the spirited element. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, Ajax is, he's. Yeah. I mean, as 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 much as uh, I, I don't want to. I mean, he he comes the closest to uh, moving uh, Achilles, but he's blunt. And he's also, I mean, just one cannot deny he's he's a physically imposing character, right. and so he's just more of this sort of uh, impulsive mm-hmm. guttural response to mm-hmm. some of you know, the more basic appetites, not necessarily in a negative way, but just sort of, hey, you know, right, this is this is it. Well, and, um, Achille- and Achilles himself is has this very strong thematic yeah. dimension to yes. him, right? I mean, so it's it's interesting that that they're. That even internal to Achilles, we have a um, a psyche yes. that is battling with it, this, you know, internally. With this yeah, and, and you know, a lot of the literature on on that instance kind of you know takes agency away from Achilles. But I'm saying, you know, I, I'm I'm tempted to be like he looks like he's struggling, and it's not yeah. just 
not just the gods playing around with with Achilles. And this, you know, this more than any other aspect, um, seems like a very calculated move. The embassy itself, mm-hmm. um, going all the way back to uh, oh, the name escapes me now, Nestor, uh-huh, um, right. who who constructed, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, the whole incident, I mean, the, you know, obviously the whole, the whole Iliad, but this particular incident seems to be like a, seems to me to be um, an instance where we see this sort of problem of fragmentation of the soul and someone, Nestor, saying, well, we need to sort of reintegrate these, these elements once again. Um, right. And so um, not only do we see this sort of attempt to move an individual soul, but we also see it as, uh, or I argue that it's representative of, you know, the, the problem with the Achilles army at the time, uh, not mm. the, uh, the Achaean army at right. the time. And so, um, you know, amazingly enough, if, 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 if the argument holds, I mean, we have uh, this sort of macro microcosmic, uh-huh. Uh, you know, analogy of, of the city and the soul uh, taking so then, uh, emerging. So, you know. so then, your so then part of your argument, at least, is uh, judging from what you say in your chapter on mm-hmm. Plato, is that the, that there's an anticipation of the structure of the republic in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and and I look at also. Uh, I mean, that's the big rhetorical part, but I lay groundwork with uh, the shield of uh, Achilles um, in the the man of state, the the different tableaus that are represented, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, the judgment of Paris, um, you know, all is, is sort of antecedents uh, to the same problem. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about this uh, and thinking about some of the dissertations we're, you know, we, we work on in the philosophy department. And I know if, if you had come to me with this sort of sweeping scope of a dissertation that started with Homer and ended with St. Bonaventure, I'd be saying, whoa, okay, can you cover it all? And I mean, judging from the chapter that you have, on, on Plato, you've done a nice job of, of, of you know, getting at uh, a lot of the uh, secondary sources and, and, and giving a, a nuanced reading. I mean, we, we may quibble about specific kinds of uh, interpretive moves that you make, but, um, but that, that section is, is, um, is impressive. And so it, it's great to hear that, it, you know, you've got this sort of pre-Platonic, Platonic, and now even, you know, into the... Yeah, into the post-Augustinian yeah, world. Yeah, I and mean, that's, I mean, that, that was the worry, was, uh-huh. was it manageable? And so I tried to stitch a really, I tried to, you know, take a thread and just yeah. maneuver it through, um, you know, all these, all these elements. And, and the thread was really the psychagogic yes, dimension. Okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically, you know, I was able to narrow it down because it, it was psychagogic along these tripartite lines. Yeah. And so there's other stuff that I know I can't cover, right. but this, I think, I could pull out, right. you know, I can, I can stitch through um, and, and, uh, but as we said uh, before, yeah. um, before I think we, we started taping, you know, I realized um, that this could easily be and probably should be uh, instead of one sweeping project in book form, yeah. probably the seeds for, you know, a, a research directory for right. the next 10, 15 years. Right. And, you know, so three books. Three probably. books. Yeah. 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 So and in, in, in terms of that research trajectory, are you thinking of starting at the beginning or be going with Plato as your first project? I, mean, I would I would. I would think that the first project would start um, with Homer and, okay. and terminate with Plato. Um, okay. You know, and so I think that would be manageable uh, right. with with what I have. In it might pre-tenure be pre-tenure time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but if something had to be shed, it would be the uh, the earlier stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, would, that would be reduced, and, and the focus would be on Plato because because yeah. that's uh, that's the foundation. That's the interpretive key. Reading backwards as well as reading right. forward. Right. Yeah. Well, one strategy might be to think about uh, an article or two out of that. Plato section, even as you work up yeah. the Homer, the pre-Plato and Homer from Homer section uh, book, 
because you can have a, a couple of publications in a in a in a book on Plato later on yeah. if it's seven or eight chapters you can have two chapters published on it and that would give you a little bit of uh, a little bit of extra uh, credentials there uh-huh. in pre tenure time. Yeah. And then it would also give a little breathing room in the book itself, right? Or are you are you talking about bringing those chap bringing those articles into the book? Oh well, no, no. I was thinking about publishing. I was thinking yeah. about sort of working on the book and yeah. the book manuscript together. Uh, obviously, that takes uh, time. You want mm-hmm. you're going to want to have that you know submitted in by year three of yep. your pre tenure time, so that it has time to <laughs> work through its system of publishing. Um, but in the meantime, maybe a publish off a, yep. a chapter or two. From what will then be the second book? Yes. So that you are already on sort of on your well on your way for the well. Hopefully, will be post tenure. Yes. You know, um, uh, but getting tenure then on that Homer book. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and so you know we we expect I think at Penn State the book and some articles and you'd yes. have some you know you'd have that. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, Let's talk a little bit about this Plato uh, uh-huh. chapter. So you begin with the features. Tell us a little bit about the argument here that you, you made in this chapter. Well, one of the major controversies, and I, I think it looks it's still a controversy in the philosophical literature as well, but uh, in the rhetorical literature is this sort of love-hate relationship with, with Plato, as Plato, I would argue, you know, uh, uh-huh. manifests or articulates a, a love-hate relationship with rhetoric. Um, and so one of the major questions is, is he serious? You know, is there is there something at play here um, that that we can learn from and benefit from? And uh, even those who take it seriously, I think, read it as incomplete. The Phaedrus. So mm-hmm. there's an ideal that's set, mm-hmm. um, and I'd say the most sort of common positive read is there's an ideal that's set, and um, Aristotle finishes it. You know, kind of takes it up and, and with the with the uh, the rhetoric uh, lays out mm-hmm. this, this sort of ideal. And I would I would I, I disagree with with that. Um, in so uh, so I, I, agree, I agree with the sentiment that mm-hmm. there that that there is positive because you know the opposite is that this is this is all yeah uh, tongue in cheek. There's nothing gotcha. really about rhetoric. You mean uh, so when you say there's a positive, you mean that that Plato actually has a, a positive attitude toward rhetoric, a yes. certain kind of rhetoric. Yes. Uh, I mean, and you know, it's been called in the literature, and I myself have also argued that it's sort of philosophical rhetoric, this rhetoric rooted in concerns about justice, about truth. Yes, truth. yeah, yeah, and I would say that there's, there's an earnestness yeah. about his speaking of rhetoric. Um, well, you know. And Socrates is using rhetoric all the time. Exactly. So, I mean, that just shows itself. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm definitely a proponent of the argument of if he uses rhetoric, he can't hate it. Right. Mean, he can't. He can't be serious about how it's you know all corrupting. Right. Um, yeah. The I'm, I guess you'd say I'm in, in the Ciceronian camp, as, insofar as we can take Cicero's characters as saying anything you know relative to uh, in respect to, to Cicero. Sure. Um, you know the he he sort of attacked rhetoric through being the best rhetorician. Right. And so. It, it, to me, just you know, even if everything he says is somewhat in earnest, negatively, yeah. he's still worthy of study. Right. I disagree. That I, I, I um, however, happen to agree that there's serious theory that's going on there that he's trying to lay out. So, I mean, you you focus in this chapter at least, and uh, as I mentioned, I think rightly so, on that uh, passage at two seventy one C and D in the Phaedrus, where uh, Socrates uh, emphasizes that um, the, it's the nature of speech. Is in fact to direct the soul. Yes. Uh, 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 whoever intends to be a rhetorician must know how many kinds of soul there are, et cetera, et cetera. So this psychagogic dimension in the in the features, but it does seem that um, 
in the Gorgias, yes. there is a whole lot of material there, uh, both in the psychagogic dimension, but also in this kind of philosophy of rhetoric relationship. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's the foil that some people who want to read him negatively, you know, say is there's there's there, there's much more and worse things that he says about rhetoric in the Gorgias. Yeah. You know? um, and it can't be reconciled with what's said in the Phaedrus. Um, and then some people, you know, some of the arguments are um, there's not even proof that the Phaedrus is written after the Gorgias, so you wouldn't see this sort of de- this developmental argument. Yeah. And I think the, the the camp I fall in line with is it doesn't matter because the argument is there's a bad type of rhetoric and right. a good type of rhetoric, and that seems consistent. Yeah, exactly. Right. That seems consistent all the way out through the sophists and statesmen and then the laws. Yeah. Um, so right. yeah, so that would be that would be my uh, you know that that's not very innovative, <laughs> but that would be the camp that I fall in, which yeah. is. Um, it doesn't matter what the uh, order, order of the, the, the order of the of composition, composition, the composition is because you know there he's talking about two distinct things, um, one good type, one bad type, and you can talk about those in, in any order. It's it's not developmental because there are some people who um, there are some scholars uh, who who read a positive development towards an appreciation of rhetoric, um, yeah. and I would say while I'm sympathetic to that move, it, it, it it's unnecessary. Um, yeah, given right. given what he has to say. Yeah, and it probably depends a lot on claims about or assumptions about the chronological, you know, uh, writing of the composition exactly. of, the, of the dialogues. And I, I myself tend to want to look at the dramatic yep. dimensions. And so, what's the story that's being told in the course of the dialogues? Um, and you know, certainly that Gorgias tells a different story than yep. the Phaedrus. But I agree with you that. Uh, the issue of good and bad rhetoric, or of you know philosophical and non-philosophical rhetoric, yeah. uh, and I would and I've argued actually in the in, in the Plato and Socrates book that's coming out that in the Gorgias that you know it's the, really the friendship that mm-hmm. that is established between Gorgias and 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 Socrates in that dialogue at certain moments. Gorgias is the one who sort of really brings the conversation forward at, a, at important times. Is a is a way of showing that there is a, a friendship. There. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, I, would, I would I would agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so yeah, so the the project itself in the in the Phaedrus um, takes that as a starting point, but points back to the idea that if we want to understand the soul, I agree, it's not well developed in in the Phaedrus. I mean, I think there are some you know there, there's some images of, of the soul uh, which are which are telling, and uh, in my reading, important. In, in important ways consistent with the Republic and allows the Phaedrus to point back to the Republic as the sort of, you know, uh, text that the would-be rhetor should should uh, come to understand and, yeah. and know um, in important ways. Uh, so when there's complaints of he doesn't really fulfill this sort of promise of what rhetoric is, my answer is, uh, he does a lot of that. He does a lot of what the rhetor, he establishes a lot of what the rhetor needs to know uh, in the Republic. So, you know, he, as, as a teacher might do, he's like, here's some, here's some extra reading. So, so when, so now the he here is Plato. The, yeah, I would, I would argue, yeah, I, would, I mean, I'm looking more at... Um, so, so, I mean, that makes sense in the sense that the writing of, I mean, the, the I guess the, to put in a form of a question yes. to you is... You know, how are we to understand? Let's not take all the dialogues as a whole, but yeah. just you know, the features in relation to the Republic. Yeah, um, yeah, I would definitely. Um, not that I don't take the characters in consideration. I think that there's a lot of uh, 
ground that is made up by, by doing so, uh, or that is made, made by taking the characters into consideration. But I'm looking more at, uh, from a platonic perspective, of what, it, what these are Plato's works, and he's saying something about rhetoric through Socrates. What is that? Uh, and less about, I don't think I really even grapple with um, what might the historical Socrates, yeah, but know, I mean, or I the think, character, you know. Okay. Yeah. So, but I mean, so, let, yeah, let's push on that a little bit, because okay. I, I, I totally agree that there is... I would say that there is a Platonic perspective, a yeah. Platonic philosophy. I, I, maybe I would call it a Platonic teaching because I think we, we tend to um, over uh, or we, te- we tend to move quickly from uh, teaching to doctrine. Yes, yeah. And, and I think Plato has decided to write dialogues for very specific philosophical reasons. And, there, and as a result of that, I think it's important always to remember that these are characters saying certain things in yes. certain context. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that Plato's not, in doing that, developing a philosophical position, a rel- relatively strong one, and one that is uh, rooted in a kind of philosophical teaching. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that one of the aspects of that philosophical teaching is that uh, philosophy cannot be pursued in this dogmatic, yeah. doctrinary yeah. way. Yeah, and I would agree. And would that's agree. related then to the the rhetorical dimension. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, it is you know this sort of um, combined effort of. I mean, that that's one thing that when we when you, when I trace the the trajectory out into the Middle Ages, right, it gets picked up in the language arts in the trivium in the mm-hmm. idea of uh, grammar, dialectic, and or logic. Um, and rhetoric working together in this sort of psychotic uh, mm-hmm. you know, effort. Um, so I'm one to uh, not be too concerned of the priority of dialectic uh, over rhetoric or vice versa, mm-hmm. um, because I think for Plato and even for like Isocrates, it's it's a it's a joint effort, and all the components are necessary and should be equally appreciated in in that role in the roles that they play. Right. You know, like like the elements of the Republic itself. Right? Yeah. So let's talk about the Republic now. I thought we were going to talk about the features, but now we're into the Republic. So that's good. <laughs> um, how, so how, I mean, okay, so I mean, your, your reading is uh, foregrounds, I think, rightly, this notion that uh, of the analogy between the soul and the city. Yeah. And this is, you know, critical, I think, to any reading of the Republic because... I mean, as opposed to reading it as a kind of a political yeah. treatise yes. that is trying to articulate a political theory. Yeah. I mean, there's political dimensions, obviously, of it, but it is really the analogy that Socrates says, okay, let's look at the soul writ large, let's look at how it might act out in the city. So, okay, so play that out a little bit in terms of what that, that's teaching us about rhetoric and the role with regard to the soul. Yeah, and so... If we take the the phaedra seriously and say that what we need to be for to be rhetors is to understand souls, mm-hmm. how they're how they're made up and 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 how they uh, how you know what types there are and then how words move them, mm-hmm. um, it seems yeah you know, like there's a fairly well thought out scheme in in the Republic. You know whether or not you want to argue that it, again, not that it's doctrinal sure. um, but that it's uh, suggestive at the very least of, of human motives and how they how they operate and how they play with one another um, that seems like there's a fairly well understood story that's there um, so the job of the dissertation of this chapter was to ask 
are there any correlates as far as the logos is concerned, as far as speech is concerned, and can we map out a similar structure? And in mapping out that structure, can we come to know how words actually motivate certain souls to mm -hmm. to move and ideally to sort of you know reconfigure and, and turn into you know, other types of souls, you know, mm -hmm. higher, you know, mm -hmm. moving sort of this this chain of ascent, mm -hmm. um, and. I guess my, my answer was, was yes. You know, mm -hmm. they're, 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 um, not only can one call out mm -hmm. important insights into how speech motivates and, and transforms these particular types of souls, it, it's pretty, it, he, he's in almost every section that he's talking about a soul type or an element of the soul, he talks about what motivates them through speech. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, it, a lot of it's laid out. It's just a matter of kind of stitching it, stitching it yeah. together. You know? So, so maybe get a little bit more specific about the kinds of the things that you were um, talking about with regard to specific kinds of souls and, and what's motivating. <laughs> yeah, I would say that uh, sort of the most uninteresting part, right, uh -huh. is talking about the rational element of the soul and then the aristocrat. Um, mainly because that's what everyone ascribes to Plato as this is what he thinks rhetoric is. Right, right. It's just sort of, you know, it's just telling people the truth right. and moving them from, you know, no, no adornment, no, you know, uh -huh. you know right. just sort of, right. just sort of uh, blunt rationality. Um, and I think that's there, right? right. Maybe even, in a, and I think even most rhetoricians would, 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 uh, agree that in an ideal world where there's nothing wrong, like there's no problems that need to be addressed, there would be no rhetoric, right? Um, and I, so I, I don't see any sort of antagonism with Plato there or with Plato and, and rhetoric because if things were, you know, rhetoric uh, is meant to address problems, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, but, but even there, even there, and, and uh, the, 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 the question of the, the role of ideas, of ideals, yeah. of a day, yeah. Um, in Plato, and in particularly, you know, the way Socrates appeals to them, yep. it is always in this hypothetical mode, yep. where he's just drawing our attention, drawing the interlocutor's attention to them in order to, as uh, a rhetoric, a rhetorical uh, move in a in a very positive way, yep. I think, yep. like to get to, to get us to look beyond. The realities and to possibilities, new possibilities, yeah. right? Yes, yeah, and so yeah, and so I think it's it's um, fairly commonplace what's said there, and at the same time, I think it's presented as an ideal um, to help motivate, not as one that's attainable. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. uh, and so if we stop there, we leave out so much more of what Plato has to say about the soul sure. and, and, and you know how it functions. Um, yeah, and why partly also why Plato depicted his philosophy in these messy terms of yeah. this person going around talking to people who are <laughs> obstreperous and and, uh, and and you know or limited or whatever. I mean he's got his ideal philosopher in the real world. Yeah. And and with with some foibles too. I mean, he's he's he can be <laughs> he can be uh, frustrating as, yes. as a as a figure too, as he certainly must have been. Well, and I think you know, uh, as as people have have pointed out about the Gorgias, both philosophers and rhetoricians, um, he fails in the Gorgias. I mean, I don't think there's any way you can really mm -hmm. argue um, that Socrates wins the day, and he hardly ever wins the day, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Yet, I mean, I think yes, I think that's right. He's he he on the uh, on the dramatic level, he often fails. Yeah. 
um, and yet there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of way in which he is successful in certain other aspects. Yes, no, no, I, 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 yeah, but, I agree. Yes. And, and is that the point of the you know of the dialogues, or is it to move the, the reader of the, of the of the dialogue? Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But but it, you know, if we're looking at it in sort of a, a at, the, at the dramatic level, mm-hmm. I mean, there are some you know, questions to be taken away of. Wait a second. You know, yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, this 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 dialectic thing isn't very effective. You know, right. at least if the goal is to like persuade people. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Um, so so okay. So that's the less the least interesting, the rational part of <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Getting you back to yeah. that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the so the democratic. You know, uh, there are there, uh, he he discusses. You know, one in their education, they've been persuaded by, or they've been educated um, not by persuasion but by force. And I think it's a very interesting sort of term uh, to use there. And you know, what exactly does that mean? Um, and I argue that means that um, the Timocrat is is fairly bound uh, by the moral schematic. They're, they 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 lack critical distance to be able to. Um, you know, actually ask questions about the schema that they're in. However, within that scheme, um, they're deadly. I mean, you know, they're deadly accurate as far as, you know, manipulating um, the values and being able to make arguments and things like that. And they can be persuaded by similar sorts of arguments that speak to core values. Um, you know, and this is, uh, I think, where I brought uh, Protagoras in mm-hmm. um, and the uh, sort of argument he gives in the in the Theodotus, which is, you know, um, for certain uh, types of, of, of places, if you can just figure out what their scheme is, you can you can manipulate it in a way that actually makes them better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can make an argument, if you can leave the sort of completely objective, this is right, and let's move on all these steps, and be able to morph into the uh, sort of uh, moral schema of, especially in a democratic you know society. Right. Um, what what their moral scheme is, then you can be able to transform them just by appealing to certain core values, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so uh, the honor bound are are, insofar as they're honor bound, are honor bound to you know observe observe your moves if there's a uh, discernible logic that you can that you can make. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you see those? Uh, I mean, the characters who have characters in the dialogues who have that. Kind of soul are seem like there there are plenty there are there yeah. are some of them right yeah I mean, I mean polis, like uh, probably in the Gorgias might be one of Polis might be one yeah of Polis them. Polis seems uh-huh. you know uh, very very spirited or uh, Polemicus uh, in the Republic yeah, you know and he actually he actually yeah. seems fairly you know as gruff as he is he's pretty agreeable you yeah know? Um, you know or maybe if we move to the um, the Lockies right uh-huh. where you're, yeah we're talking about courage and yeah. um, you know pe- the, the the sometimes the less intellectual you know. Um, the more agreeable these interlocutors are to just sort of, you know, uh, follow some of of, uh, of Plato's moves. Uh-huh. Uh, Polis probably being the least, right, right. <laughs> the least agreeable. Right. You know, but he's also the most intellectual out of all out yeah. of all of them. You know, yeah. he's, he's been uh, fairly fairly well trained already in some sort of philosophical orientation. So yeah. So within the within the Republic, so Paul Marcus, you, you point to. I mean, it's interesting to think about the characters of Adamantus and Glaucon yeah. in these in these regards. Because I like my, my take on Glaucon is that he's the most sophisticated of them all. And yeah. it's really with Glaucon that yeah. Socrates brings forward yeah. the most important. Yeah, and he has a lot of spirited, yeah. you know, characteristics. Right. right? right. I mean, you got the. Uh, uh, the honor loving. Right. Um, he mentions horses. And yeah, yeah. I mean, all these sort of right. you know. Well, he's uh, erotic. I mean, Socrates calls him both geometrical and erotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and those are the, so he has these aspects of his soul that make him, I think, the kind of person that uh, Socrates would gravitate to yeah. with regard to the, the the most sort of yeah. 
uh, important parts of that that dialogue. Although, interestingly enough, I'm talking about sort of converting Timocrats. Um, in the Phaedrus, yeah. you know, when you talk about Lysias, I mean, he mentions yeah. that Polemarchus has been converted to philosophy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, just, I don't know why, go. I don't know. You know but. There you go. That's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, but what about Phaedrus himself in, in the Phaedrus? I mean, my, uh, here again, I, ha- I mean, my take on that is that Phaedrus is moved. Yeah. Whether it, ho- whether it holds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he goes back into the city convinced, okay, we're going to go, yeah. and I'm going to go back to Lysias and, and talk, talk to him about what I learned here. Yeah. Um, and Socrates happily going to <laughs> Great Socrates. Socrates, yeah. So yeah. that's good. Um, uh, but of course, given the historical features and sort of what you know in his in his uh, fate with regard to you know participating in sort of the tyrannical kind of activities, <laughs> it, 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 it But that may be beside. I mean, if you're just looking at the, yeah. what happens dramatically yeah. in the text, he do, but he does move. I mean, and is, what is it there? Is it? I mean, obviously, Socrates is leveraging. Phaedrus' love of words. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I would, I would, the argument I make, the interpretive move, as far as the Phaedrus is concerned, coming off of the psychology. Yeah. Um, I follow a sort of, I don't want to call it a throwaway comment, but a comment that Ferrari makes, which mm-hmm. he says, like, uh, um, the first uh, speech of, of Socrates uh, seems aimed at a democratic soul. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I key on that is because in other places, Ferrari and, and Nightingale, um, uh, when they're reading, uh, they take. I think there's there's a there's an impulse there, and I, I I'm sympathetic with the impulse um, to read the speeches as speaking to different elements in the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my read would be that there's actually transformations going on. That he's uh-huh. speaking to different soul types, and that's why I think Ferrari's closest when he says the speech is, is aimed at a democratic soul, not the spirited element. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you know when we open up the the speech of Lysias, you know, seems aimed at somebody who's a sort of democratic lover who only kind of wants pleasure, you know, is more sort of whimsical, can't be counted on to be uh, consistent, um, you know, and, and, and it attempts to transform the lover mm-hmm. into a uh, oligarchic lover. And Lysias' speech is, is almost completely a, you don't want to just be flippant. You don't want to just be this democratic soul. You want to you know, maximize uh Benefit mm-hmm. and minimize cost, mm-hmm. um, which seems to me to be a very oligarchic sort of sort of uh, argument. Argument, um, and then when uh, Socrates comes in, you know, you see the overlap between the oligarchic and the democratic. Um, you know, he agrees. Most of the components are similar, you know, but there's a difference in orientation. And he starts with this sort of value talk, uh, more sort of material, and converts it to a moral value sort of talk that I, I believe would be. Uh, consonant with the democratic soul mm-hmm. um, and then the final step is this sort of change at least towards um, if not into an aristocrat you know a look here's this you know we, we've I've, I've, I've moved you to valuing your soul right. um, now here's a sort of ideal picture of what the soul should mm-hmm. be and, and look like um, and and so that's what I would argue is is the transformation that's happening throughout the speeches is uh, one you know, not just climbing the ladder of a soul but transforming um, the elements and their orientation to one another. Because I think they overlap as far as talking about, you know, just purely rational content, um, things that, you know, uh, ple- hedonistic sort of content, mm-hmm. and also, you know, honor sort of, uh, you know, uh, motivations of honor and, and, and whatnot. So um, I think that's, I understand the impulse, you know, right. the parts of soul, but I think that it's, it's more sophisticated than that. And therefore, um, Again, you know, not showing an evolution necessarily in in 
in Plato's thought, but showing a sort of evolution in the, the character of Socrates, you know, from the Gorgias to the Phaedrus, you see these, you know, talking of, uh, talking to individuals as if they're different parts of the soul, mm -hmm. um, to talking to one individual and all the parts of his soul. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that's yeah, why I think yeah. he, and I would argue that he's more effective because of that. Right. Yeah. So I would, I would put a movement, you know, uh, between the Gorgias, the Republic and the Phaedrus. Uh -huh. um, you know, with the Phaedrus pointing back and telling right. us how to read, you know, these these and with Socrates himself deve developing, developing as a character, as yeah, a, as a character, yeah. And I mean, and you see some of this language where sure. in the in the Gorgias he's sort of descending, um, mm -hmm. you know, and he dies at the end, right? You know, there's this this death metaphor, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to say you better stop that or you're gonna get killed. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then you know he enters into enters into to hell and the Republic, you actually, you know, there's arguments at Epibron, I think, sure, you know, yeah, yeah. To, you know, talks up, about, right. yeah, exactly, yeah, right. you know, he's, he's, yeah. Um, you know, he's in hell at that point, you know, kind of on these outskirts of, of, of Athens um, and you know, learning about the soul. And then you have this sort of ascent movement in, in the Phaedrus, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's outside the city, and outside the city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, but, but even on your account, you, you've got, I mean, you, you bring us to the third, uh, Socrates' second speech, which yeah. is where this, you know, the wonderful chariot metaphor and the horses, which obviously is central to your uh, argument. Yeah. Um, but, but then there's the, the second half of the dialogue. So <laughs> yeah. what are you doing with that? Um, so, I mean, I, I would definitely be one to argue that there is a unity there. Mm -hmm. um, and I would argue that the unity is, is both rhetoric and love. Yeah, um, right. you know, because I, I I think that that's that's the argument to be made, right? right? Is right. rhetoric is a sort of of loving relationship, right? And a certain, I mean, I would say the philosophical rhetoric has this erotic dimension, mm -hmm. and 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 tuning oneself into that erotic dimension, part of which means uh, turning your attention to these ideals that, even if not uh, attainable, are a function at as uh, erotic principles that drive us to closer to them, yeah. that pull us together closer to them. Yeah. Um, and, and that seems to be, and then the question becomes, okay, well, how does one use words mm -hmm. to, to help move yeah. souls that way? Yeah, and so, I mean, I do think it's, it, it's more pedagogical, you know? Sure. Um, and in fact, as far as dialectics concerned, it's not, I, I don't find it that interesting. As, you know, mm -hmm. um, it seems... Like Phaedrus has more or less been converted, and he's kind of just you know he yeah. he's he's not giving a lot of resistance as right. far as uh, dialectical. Yeah, I mean, concerned. I think the, the the some of the the passages there that I, because I, my own reading of the Phaedrus is interested in the question is interested in reading the Phaedrus as a collaborative reading. Yeah, so that yeah. What Socrates and uh, and Phaedrus are doing, at least in part in that dialogue, is. Collaboratively reading the Lycian speech. Yeah, yeah. And then so. when Socrates comes back in the second half and starts actually reading aloud together some of those, so when he said this, then what, you know, and they had that whole important conversation about writing and speaking and also the important um, uh, sort of gesture to the need for written works, uh, works to have. Uh, organized yeah. principles to be like an organism. Yes, you know that's obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of yeah. parts that come out that that but play into to my analysis. I mean, because I, I do think I mean I do take that idea the logos as a living sort of organism that needs to be uh, you know that can structurally um, you know, speak to the to speak to the soul. Um, I do think the, there are problems of unity there that I would come down 
on the on you know, the side that there is a unity. I but I just I don't have a very developed argument yeah. as to as to what exactly it is. Um, I, I realize it's more pedagogical. I think there's some very interesting philosophical things that are said. So I don't want to be like here's his speeches and then here he's just talking about right. you know. <laughs> well, literary fair theory. enough. Yeah. I mean, with a dissertation that spans this scope, <laughs> yeah, I had to, to, yeah, and and you have a good uh, methodological reason for why to focus on these sections. Yeah. So that I mean, yeah. that's fair enough. I think probably in the in the in the, in the book, book, yeah, you exactly. Really, yeah. you know, flesh that out. And there, there are there are elements where you know it didn't really figure into the interpretation, but I did use the second part uh, in in defense because a lot of the attack that comes into this he's not being serious is that towards the end it sounds like um, he's still saying that really the ideal rhetoric is dialectic, right. um, and you know so so I do delve into some of the controversies in that section, but not. I, I don't. I, I'll, I'll freely admit I don't have a cohesive reading right sure. now as, as far as you know what's happening in the second thing. That's good. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about what happens after uh, this uh, mm-hmm. moment in the, um, the this chapter in in the dissertation yeah. in terms of the the um, move to Augustine and, mm-hmm. and Saint Bonaventure. Yeah. So I look at. Uh, I try to see where Augustine is. Um, familiar mm-hmm. with with Plato and where he gets his Platonism right so part of what I'm you know part of the caveat that I have up front uh, up front of the dissertation is that when I say a platonic tradition I don't mean all these people sitting around reading Plato because mm-hmm. you know the, their availability I mean I don't even know what Bonaventure really had outside of maybe Cicero's fragments of the Timaeus and mm-hmm. some other you know um, but he, uh, they seem to get it right or at least you know, <laughs> they seem to be in line with what I'm arguing. Uh-huh. Um, so I look at I look at uh, Cicero and then uh, the Neoplatonists, Plotinus um, uh-huh. and uh, Porphyry, um, as leading up to Augustine and looking specifically again at these. You know, uh, whether or not they have a triadic picture, um, if these elements are communicated in ways that still allow for Augustine to sort of reconstruct. Well, you know, to either accept what's there or reconstruct what's missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, McKeon, uh, Richard McKeon has an interesting line in Rhetoric in the Middle Ages uh, where he says that, you know, there's three, he, he talks about three different types of ways rhetoric develop and he says there's an Augustinian way um, where basically Augustine uh, works backwards from the Neoplatonists to a more original sort of you know, platonic uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, system. Um, I use that word loosely. but. Sure. Um, yeah, so I follow these elements out and ask myself, you know, can, could Augustine actually have done this? And, and the elements are there, you know, the parts of the soul, whether or not they're uh, changed, if they've morphed a little bit, because uh, it part of the platonic argument is reprivileging the spirited element as probably the most important part of uh, the soul when it comes to rhetoric. And there's elements in Augustine's On Christian Doctrine where it really seems like he's he's weaving together a lot of these traditions of, of psychology, of um, the modes of speech or the different, uh, you know, the, the grand, the different styles of speech, grand, uh, medium, and, and the, the low style, um, and the duties of the orator, which are to instruct, delight, and persuade. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people say persuade, but really in the Latin, it's to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems to be stitching all these together in a very sort of tripartite way where, look, we can instruct. Um, and we can even delight sometimes, but it's all for naught if we don't move. And when he talks about moving the soul, um, it's very uh, packed with this sort of spirited imagery of you know mm-hmm. armor and weapons and fire and you know anger and whatnot. And right. so, um, and so uh, for that movement there, uh, I pick up on uh, Augustine's focus of, of conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the the second chapter that chapter in Augustine is called the the Perigogic. Uh, rhetoric of, of Augustine because uh, 
when I finished the, I think I, I yeah, I ended this chapter, mm -hmm. you know, it talks about these two elements, the, the turning around and then the lifting up. Mm -hmm. um, and what I have come to conclude, and it wasn't what I expected, uh, but it was interesting. And I was like, okay, you know, and I'm learning. Yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> yeah. a good sign. Yeah, is that the lifting up, the anagogic movement, um, mm -hmm. is much less to do with the audience and more to do with the speaker. Um, mm. And so it's in this sort of caring for, this loving the audience and turning them to, um, you know, the sort of transcendental truths um, that the speaker itself is is able to kind of see the divine structure in wow. them and, and therefore, you know, begins to transcend. And that's where Bonaventure comes in more. Um, yeah, and so through Bonaventure, I'm looking at uh, uh, Augustine, of course, and then also uh, Pseudo Dionysius. Um, you have St. Victor, and then just the sort of landscape amongst the scholastics, because he's like this sort of uh, platonic uh, foil to a lot of the Aristotelianism that's going on. Mm -hmm. Although he'll, he'll temper, I mean, he'll, he specifically says uh, he would take Plato over Aristotle, mm -hmm. and he likes both, mm -hmm. but he would reject, I mean, you know, they, they both suck short of like someone like Augustine, right? right. You know? But Augustine is pretty platonic, so. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so he speaks much more systematically and I think directly about what we gain um, through contemplating our own ability to, to language. And, you know, here, I mean, he defines rational philosophy as the trivium, as grammar, logic, and, and, and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, that mapped onto the soul allows it. So, you know, the, one of the major arguments of the dissertation is that there, is, there are analogical structures that run throughout the soul through language itself and through the cosmos divine. Um, and so in sort of getting those structures right and aligning them, um, we can kind of move audiences and ourselves to some sort of transcendent state. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so is, I mean, it, the, the, so this is a question more about you and your <laughs> sort of your, your own uh, biographical history in the sense that, so what, what brought you to this, this whole project. I mean, you have this really um, uh, strong uh, uh, Catholic thrust with regard mm -hmm. to the uh, the end of the dissertation. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, is that has that informed your thinking? Without, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, so uh, yeah, I, I, I do come from a specific you know theological perspective. Yeah. Um, and as I began to play with some of these ideas as an undergraduate, yeah. you know, I was sort of stitching things together. I have like little sketches of triangles, you know, that I was trying That's to like, cool. you know, put, you know, all the, all the arts in. And then as I started researching it, um, it, it was kind of difficult how, it was kind of surprising how, looking back, how difficult it was to find the research I was, you know, the, the elements I was trying to find. But now, you know, looking at it, I'm like, oh, it was everywhere. I was like, I had these models of like the trivium and, and I would, as I would look back, and this might just be because, <laughs> um, you know, the ability to do research has grown so much from when I was an undergraduate, right. Well, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to now. But, you know, I was, I was you know, it, it seemed intuitive to me that the language arts sort of mapped on to this tripartite structure of the soul. And as I played with that idea, it seemed to, to gain a lot of traction. And then I was like, well, this just seems like a, you know, uh, not just, but, you know, one of the major thrusts of, of the tripartite, tri tripartite soul seems to be a... Uh, prototype of, of the Trinity um, yeah. and and you know as I'm working this out it's one of those sorts of things as when you're uh, just kind of beginning in graduate school <laughs> you know you, you get deflated when you see somebody else has has done it already right. but then I'm like 
but it's St. Bonaventure. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and at the same time, no one's working with him. So, right, you know, right, that's right. just another. So I had, I had sort of trajectory mapped so you out had for a that long time. Beginning. Okay. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, no, the Bonaventure actually came towards the end. I was, uh, of all people, I was reading Marshall McLuhan's dissertation. Uh-huh. And his dissertation, um, surprisingly, is on the trivium. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a sweeping. That's where I got. I was like, oh, I could kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a sweeping dissertation from the, the beginning, from pre Augustinian times to uh, his figure that he wants to terminate with is Thomas Nash um, in the Renaissance. And he, tell, he has this biography of it started with Thomas Nash and he worked, he worked backwards. I and I was like, I'm not going to make that mistake. You know, I'm going to uh-huh. just do this sort of try to follow the thread. But uh-huh. is in his footnotes, I came across Bonaventure and his work. Um, you know, and he had this really cool title called The Reduction of the Arts to Theology. I was like, why has no one ever told me of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> and I picked that up and I was like, oh, wow. well, this is what I was doing, but I can't do it like that. <laughs> right. I, I might as well just use it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And uh, the more I got into Bonaventure's works, I mean, he's just almost stiflingly systematic um i mean yeah. it's there's little frustrating hiccups in the way that he he uh he lays out his different structures but he's consummately trinitarian and yeah. he has all these different structures of all the different arts um but uh, in fact a paper i just presented last weekend at villanova for the uh, patristic medieval and renaissance conference um the language arts, the, what he calls rational philosophy, seems central, like a linchpin to just all these, uh, how all the other arts are to be, you know, organized. Uh-huh. Um, and for, for Bonaventure, the center is the most important. Yeah. And he, he's like always literally, you know, this is the, 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 the language arts are, are central. And uh, there's one work uh, where he breaks them into three, they're in the middle, and another work where he breaks them into seven, it's the fourth, you know, fourth spot, right. and so uh-huh. they're always played as a sort of central role. Right. Um, yeah, and so, you know, following that, I was just, uh, just been sort of amazed at how prevalent this thread is yeah. uh, throughout history, and how there's a commonplace in rhetorical studies that there wasn't a rhetoric in the Middle Ages, um, and mainly because there wasn't a lot of theoretical development, and even that's being challenged, you know, as far as pedagogy and teaching rhetoric is concerned, right. but uh, McKeon's argument in his article on rhetoric in the Middle Ages is that it may not be forwarded theoretically as you know rhetorical theory itself, but it just is so pervasive in the culture right. that um, everyone's trained in it. I mean, and what you have is a culture, you know, from pre-Augustine, you know, to, to the Renaissance where all these theorists, all these theologians are rhetoricians. I mean, they're, right. they're, they're trained and they have, they're, they're grounded in theory um, and they're, you know, they're professional preachers, you know, so right. they, so they, <laughs> and they're, and they're writing all these, you know, and, and, and most of, you know, so for with Plato, you know, you can try to fetter out all the style and say, well, what's the point, you know, mm-hmm. but when you actually look at their eloquence right. in, in joined with their, their, you know, sort of rational content, it's yeah. much more, uh, yeah, well, then, then you do thinking. need to take take seriously their their sermons, their you know what what they're saying there. And I mean, someone I think about in that regard is someone like Meister Eckhart, you know, yeah. where you've really just got some just tremendous uh, uh, sermons that are, are are rhetorically very sophisticated. And but but let me uh, let me maybe end with a uh, with a question about now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you we we I mentioned you had this article on mm-hmm. uh, digital media and. Um, we've been talking about the centrality of the language arts yeah. and um, 
obviously something I'm very interested in is sort of what happens to the language arts mm-hmm. um, in a digital age. Uh, how can we continue to have them be uh, central to what we do and bring forward a lot of the, the values that we've learned over the course mm-hmm. of generations? Um to this new medium, this new mode of, of communication. So maybe you could test stuff a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the paper itself was looking at two uh, movements, I would say, in sort of education. One is the critical media literacy movement, um, which is about as critical, you know, rooted in critical theory as you, you would think. And the other is this sort of Christian schooling, you know, movement uh, of, of sort of traditional trivium education. Yeah. Uh, and the object of the paper was to look at their actual premises and what they're you know, what, what what they were arguing education needed to be mm-hmm. and how it needed to achieve that um and they're strikingly similar yeah. right um they both agree both these camps what they want are critically trained autonomous citizens mm-hmm. that can participate in the world. And I was like, well, no. well imagine that. Here we go. <laughs> you know, and so most of the time, I mean, you know, you have you have one end valorizing like, like Dewey and the other end, you know, condemning Dewey, but both of them are seem to be just pointing to the same period of when things kind of went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in sort of this I guess you, you know, like what Ferrer calls the, you know, the banking model of, of education. Um, the problem is is that we've had it for a while and so the sort of critical arm says oh that conservative traditional you know model of education is no good um but at some point fairly recently as well as far as modern history is concerned it was an innovation and so the the, the classical learner you know the classical side is saying this this modern sort of education is is no good but they're both they're both pointing to the same sort of you know um contemporary sort of education where it's just uh, subject oriented uh, uh, you know testing oriented mm-hmm. sort of education where both sides want what I would argue would be a more humanistic sort mm-hmm. of education and one that develops the same skills right. and so whether or not we look at the classical texts and sure. call them grammar logic and rhetoric right. it's basically just the ability to encounter a text um, and as opposed to either just rejecting it outright or accepting it without reservation, being able to reflect upon it critically mm-hmm. and you know perhaps even improve upon it or you know reject it in a way that is you know uh, nuanced, right. yeah. And uh, it seemed to me that the steps that were laid out on both. So what the what the ultimate argument of that paper is is you know we have on one end uh, a specific application of the language arts and you know to a particular media. Um, and the other end, we have a very broad sort of open-ended tool that could be applied to many different media, and it seemed natural to sort of interweave them um, and just, you know, I, I think bury the ideological hatchet and say these two things actually work well together. Mm-hmm. Um, we can take a sort of trivium approach to media literacy and and production because it's 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 basically what is going on anyway without. The thousands of years of, <laughs> of right. experience and and you know insight, um, which I think get rejected too too uh, too readily. Right. Um, when really there's lots of tools that could be appropriated um, beneficially. Yeah. And so that's that, that's sort of that's the argument. On, and on the flip side, it's great to know how to deal with any media, but there are very specific media that that we are uh, encounter that, that that the youth are encountering at a staggering rate. So 
being able to apply it directly, having tools that have been thought, yeah. thought out to here's how you you know uh, go about rhetorical production you know on blog. Um, yeah. You know, the, I see no reason. You know, it's, it, it seems foolish not right. to not to you know appropriate. So and, you know, the, the end of the article is basically like you know keep your ideological differences, but I mean for the, for the sake of the children, you know, <laughs> why don't you <laughs> why don't you sort of you know keep that that's that's bedroom squabbling, right, you know, right, you know, right. Like, put on a <laughs> you know because really if what you want are critical autonomous individuals, they should be able to reject your position once they're fully right. Uh, educated, right. right? So the sort of fear, the, I, I, it's it's a uh, exhortation to not educate out of fear, you know, that if we make kids too smart, <laughs> then they'll reject right. the, the premises of what we taught them. I'm like, well, if they do that, yeah. then, you know. You've succeeded. You've succeeded, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, well, uh, I will say that um, it is very heartening to know that you are uh, teaching English 15 classes here at Penn State. <laughs> Those are our basic composition classes that are helping our students learn these important these important lessons and, and, and really helping uh, educate a new generation of what we hope to be critical citizens who are able to really uh, engage text, engage one another in thoughtful, uh, critical, but also generous and um, nuanced ways. And I, I think uh, I've appreciated you coming on to the Digital Dialogue <laughs> for, 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 for this conversation. And welcome to Penn State. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. And that's uh, that's what the last thing I'll kind of say if, uh, is, is the element of love, I think, uh, gets too easily dismissed, but we do have the idea of, of charity, which is love, you know? Uh, and so, you know, the ability for us to read a text, at least charitably, yes, exactly. is, is what yeah. is, is something I'd like to foster. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And uh, I think the, uh, the, the element of, of love uh, that so many of us who are in education share is something that sometimes gets eclipsed by all the other things that we get frustrated with. Yes. So, so it's, it's important to pause and remember that. So uh, thank you, John, for coming. Thank on. you for having me. It's been great. This has been The Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org, where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.